Hello, students. My name is Mike Estefan, and I thank you for joining me today on today's episode of the EM Clerkship Podcast. Today's episode will be a deep dive on this month's case, Aortic Dissection. Before we begin, just a quick word from our sponsors at Pearson Rabbits Insurance. Pearson Rabbits is my personal disability insurance broker. Disability insurance, specifically own occupation disability insurance, is super important for healthcare providers, especially physicians. We go through a minimum of seven years of training, at least four board certification exams, and countless hours studying to obtain the knowledge and qualifications that allow us to practice clinically in a competent manner. You want to protect your time and your financial investment. It would be truly tragic if something happened to you where you were no longer able to practice clinically. Own Occupation Disability Insurance allows you to retain the majority of your salary if such a tragedy occurred. Think about how often you see strokes in the ER. This could very well be you one day. Don't wait until it's too late. Schedule a consultation appointment with Stephanie Pearson and her team at www.pearsonrabbits.com. Thanks for listening, and now back to our episode. So today, we are going to be talking about aortic dissections. We're going to start from the basics, so going all the way back to anatomy, pathophysiology, and the different types of dissections, and then we will move on to discuss the clinical presentation, the diagnosis, and the treatment. And guys, you know me by now. I like to get lost in the details sometimes. If this style of teaching is not vibing with you, please let me know. Send me emails with feedback. Again, mike at emclerkship.com. Okay, let's get through the boring stuff real quick. A basic anatomy refresher. Everyone's favorite, right? The proximal part of the aorta is called the ascending aorta, which is basically the arch of the aorta. This is where the brachiocephalic artery, the left common carotid, and the left subclavian artery branch off of. After the branch point of the left subclavian artery, the aorta dives down into the thorax and into the abdomen, and this is the descending aorta. Now, the aorta itself is composed of three layers. The intima, which is the inner layer, the media, which is the middle layer, and the adventitia, which is the outer layer. In an aortic dissection, there is a tear in the intima layer, again, the inner layer of the aorta, which allows blood to dissect the intima away from the media, forming a false lumen. The dissection and false lumen can propagate proximally or distally and occlude arterial branch points along the aorta, leading to ischemia of various organs or of various limbs. Now, there are two different classification systems for aortic dissections, the DeBakey classification system and the Stanford classification system. You need to know the Stanford classification system in the ER, and luckily it's much simpler than the DeBakey, although the DeBakey isn't all too complicated either. Basically, in the Stanford classification system, there are two types, the Stanford type A dissection and the Stanford type B dissection. Type A is any dissection involving the ascending aorta, even if it involves the descending aorta too. So remember, type A for ascending. Type B is a dissection isolated to the descending aorta, meaning absolutely no involvement of the aortic arch. Remember, B for descending. 
The reason this is important is that type A dissections are considered surgical emergencies, while type B dissections are typically managed medically with the potential for surgery down the road. We're going to get into this a little more later in the episode. Now, let's get clinical, clinical. You guys know that song? Let's get physical? Yeah? No? Okay. I'll stop making y'all cringe with my terrible karaoke skills, but let's shift to the clinical side of things, starting with a little bit of epidemiology. So big risk factors for aortic dissections are hypertension, cocaine abuse, and connective tissue disorders such as Marfan syndrome or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Aortic dissections are at least three times more common in men than women, and about 10,000 people die annually in the U.S. due to aortic dissections. Something I thought was pretty crazy was that 25% of patients who are diagnosed with an aortic dissection die within the first 24 hours of diagnosis. So, how do these patients present? Now, this is the real clinical challenge. Because the dissection can occur at any point along the aorta, the presentation is quite variable, which represents a significant diagnostic challenge. Now, the classic presentation that we all learn about in med school is sudden-onset chest pain radiating to the back that the patient describes as tearing. Unfortunately, in real life, dissections rarely present like this. So many studies have been done to look for reliable historical factors to help diagnose dissections. If you get one takeaway from this recording, please remember this. The most reliable historical factor for diagnosing an aortic dissection by far is the intensity of pain at the onset of symptoms. You should be very suspicious with any sudden onset chest or back pain that abruptly reaches maximum severity shortly after onset. Aside from that, other historical factors are not nearly as sensitive or specific. You should also look out for chest pain radiating to the back, as we all know, chest or back pain combined with the presence of a neurologic deficit, and lastly, what some people refer to as, quote, pain above and below the diaphragm, end quote, meaning chest pain plus abdominal pain, chest pain plus groin pain, chest pain plus flank pain, chest pain plus limb pain, etc. Now, to make this even more fun, Painless dissections do occur about 10% of the time, and they usually present with isolated neurologic symptoms. So let's dissect the neurologic symptoms as well as other clinical presentations that we can see with this disease. See what I did there? Let's dissect. Ha, 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 ha. So the neurologic deficit that you will see clinically localizes to precisely where the dissection is occurring. It's actually kind of cool. If the dissection propagates through the carotid artery, the patient will present like an ICA stroke. And this is actually the most common neurologic presentation of an aortic dissection, similar to a carotid artery stroke. The second most common neurologic symptom is isolated limb weakness, numbness, and paresthesias. And this occurs due to propagation of the dissection through peripheral arteries, such as the iliac artery, the femoral artery, or the subclavian artery. I'm probably going to butcher this pronunciation, but if the artery of Adam Kiewicz is affected, you know, the artery that 
provides blood supply to the anterior spinal artery, uh, the anterior spinal cord will lose vascular supply, and the patient can present with paraplegia, loss of sensation, autonomic dysfunction, etc., etc., basically mimicking a spinal cord injury. And lastly, patients can present with random peripheral neuropathies that are caused by direct compression of a peripheral nerve due to enlarging of a false lumen of the aorta. So, long story short, chest pain or back pain with any constellation of neurologic symptoms is a dissection until proven otherwise, in my book at least. Aside from neurologic findings, there are lots of other clinical findings that can be seen with aortic dissections. A new diastolic murmur, specifically acute aortic regurgitation, can be auscultated if the dissection involves the aortic root. Signs of acute limb ischemia, such as pulselessness, pallor, pain, paresthesias, etc., the five Ps, can be seen as well if the dissection knocks off one of the subclavian or iliac arteries. This is also the same situation that you would see an arm blood pressure differential. That is, a difference of 20 or more systolic blood pressure between each arm. Again, these findings are not at all sensitive, not at all specific for dissection in general, but are something to keep in mind if you do see them clinically. I would not rely on these findings, though. On the same token, knocking off one of the mesenteric arteries can cause acute mesenteric ischemia and abdominal pain. Now, much more rarely, the dissection can cause a hemorrhagic pericardial effusion that ultimately leads to tamponade. There are many cases of this described in the literature, but uh, it's pretty rare. Another rare finding would be an aortic dissection that propagates and dissects right into the right coronary artery, which leads to a STEMI, an inferior STEMI in most cases. So as you guys can probably tell, there are endless ways that a dissection can present clinically. In summary, I would say the following. Be very concerned with sudden onset of pain that is maximal in severity at the time of onset. Look out for patients presenting with focal neurologic deficits and always check pulses in those cases, even if it seems like an obvious stroke. And lastly, if you have a patient who just looks to be in extreme pain, writhing around on their stretcher, unable to get comfortable, be very concerned about a dissection or other vascular catastrophe. Okay, let's move on to diagnostics and treatment. So the gold standard diagnostic test for an aortic dissection is a CT angiogram of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. Pretty simple. There are other tests out there that can suggest a dissection, but they're not diagnostic. These include a chest x-ray, which classically will show a widened mediastinum, or a bedside ultrasound showing a actual dissection flap in the aorta. But that's really it. It's going to be all based on your history, based on the patient's clinical picture, and based on your index of suspicion leading you to ordering the correct test. That's really it. Now, let's talk about treatment. So, treatment here is also pretty straightforward. Essentially, we want to reduce the shearing stress of the blood pumping against the torn wall of the aorta. And we do this two ways. First, by reducing the number of times that the blood pumps against the aorta per minute, meaning we control the heart rate. And second, by reducing the absolute force of the blood pumping against the aorta, so we control the blood pressure. 
And to do this, there are three types of medications we use. Now, the order in which we administer these medications is important, and I'll explain why in a little bit. The first thing I do is try to control the patient's pain. This is often glanced over, but the severe pain caused by most aortic dissections will almost certainly be causing a sympathetic response with surging catecholamines, which are going to increase your blood pressure and increase your heart rate. I try to control pain up front with either fentanyl or hydromorphone because I guarantee that their pain is contributing to their elevated heart rate and blood pressure. Once their pain is controlled, the next step is to rate control with some kind of beta blocker. And here, again, our goal is to reduce the heart rate with a target heart rate less than 60. That number is important, don't forget it, heart rate less than 60. In terms of medications we use, Esmolol is great for this as it can be infused as a drip and has a very short half-life. So it is really easy to make fine adjustments. And if you overshoot it, you can make a quick adjustment and the patient will be fine. Now, this will also have the effect of lowering the blood pressure a little bit. Finally, once their heart rate is controlled, then we work on controlling their blood pressure. The goal here is less than 120 systolic. Again, this number is also very important. Goal blood pressure less than 120 systolic. We do this with an infusion of an IV calcium channel blocker, such as nicardipine or clavidipine. I personally prefer clavidipine over nicardipine, and the reason being is that clavidipine is almost analogous to esmolol in that it has a very quick half-life and is very easy to titrate because of that. Now, as I said earlier, the order here is important. The reason being, if we were to control the blood pressure first, by lowering the blood pressure, we're going to see a reflex tachycardia that will obviously increase the shearing forces, and we don't want to do that. So we control the heart rate before the blood pressure. Additionally, Esmolol has the effect of controlling both heart rate and blood pressure. So it makes sense that we want to control the heart rate first with Esmolol. It's going to drop the blood pressure a little bit, and then any further blood pressure dropping that we need to do can be accomplished by a calcium channel blocker, which is not going to affect the heart rate in this case as we are not using diltiazem or verapamil. And finally, I like to control pain first because as I previously stated, controlling their pain is going to drop both their heart rate and their blood pressure, and that will give you a true real baseline of a heart rate that you can titrate your esmolol drip to. If you do it the other way around, you titrate your esmolol drip so now their heart rate is 50, and then you give them a bunch of fentanyl to control their pain, I guarantee you they're going to become even more bradycardic and then you're going to have to slow down the esmolol drip and it's going to mess everything up. So just start with pain control, move on to your beta blockers, and then move on to your calcium channel blockers. All right, a little more on management. So typically, type A and type B dissections will be managed medically up front. However, type A dissections are considered a surgical emergency and will almost certainly be managed surgically on an emergent basis, meaning the patient will usually go from the ER straight to the OR with cardiothoracic surgery. Type B dissections are usually managed medically up front with the potential for surgery in the near future, but typically these do not go straight to the OR, they'll go to the ICU, and the decision for surgery will be made at a later date. 
So obviously, in both cases of type A dissections and type B dissections, you're going to want to call your cardiothoracic surgeon colleagues immediately to get them on board. And also, I would recommend placing an arterial line, if you're able to do this in your ER, for real-time accurate blood pressure monitoring and heart rate monitoring. All right. So we've talked about the anatomy, the pathophysiology, the clinical presentation, the diagnostics, and the treatment of aortic dissections. I want to end this episode by leaving you all with a real case that I actually had somewhat recently. Now, some details of the case have been changed or made intentionally vague to keep this HIPAA compliant, but the overall gist is very real and is the inspiration for my deep dive today. So I had this patient who was brought in by EMS as a stroke alert. The story I got was when EMS arrived at the patient's house, the patient was apparently dysarthric, you know, having slurred speech, complaining of visual changes, and had weakness of both of their upper extremities on exam. On the way to the hospital, the dysarthria and visual changes had resolved, and I evaluated the patient in the hallway right outside the CT scanner. And at that time, the patient only had unilateral weakness and numbness. Now, I didn't think much of the bilateral weakness at first, other than, you know, EMS probably didn't get a great exam because they're doing it in a patient's house with family members who are crying and the patient's probably freaking out too. Um, so I didn't, I didn't think too much of that. AccuCheck in the hallway was normal. So the patient went directly to CT for the typical stroke imaging, a CT head non-contrast, a CT perfusion, and an angio of the head and neck. This patient was not a TPA candidate due to the presence of anticoagulation on board, so that made decision-making a little easier for me. So the scans get done, and the patient goes right to their ED room. I get a call from radiology. No acute hemorrhage, no large vessel occlusion. Great. I go to the patient's room. The patient is still weak in one arm, just as they were when they arrived, but the other arm continues to be working fine, and the patient is still not dysarthric and not having any visual changes. But now even more concerning is that the nurse informs me that the patient's blood pressure is 50 over 30. The nurse checked twice. I have the nurse check a manual blood pressure, which confirmed that this blood pressure was very real. Now I'm asking the patient all these questions. The patient isn't lightheaded or dizzy at all, has no reason to be dehydrated, etc., etc. I basically ran through all the different types of shock, asked questions regarding it, and didn't hit any positives. Really weird. I ultimately ended up ordering a sepsis workup, and then I went to grab the ultrasound to do a bedside rush exam, as I usually do with my patients with undifferentiated hypotension. And then it hits me straight in the face while I'm going to grab the ultrasound. I realized what was happening. I returned to the room and asked the nurse to check the blood pressure in the other arm, which was the non-weak arm. This blood pressure was 180s over 90s, and I rechecked the initial arm, the weak arm, and it was, again, 50 over 30. This time, I examined the weak arm much more carefully. The patient has a barely palpable radial pulse. That arm is cool. It's not well perfused. Crap. I order a stat CTA of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis and have the patient brought immediately to CT for repeat imaging. And just take a guess. What was the diagnosis? 
It was an aortic dissection extending to the brachiocephalic artery with near-complete occlusion of the right subclavian artery. So let's rewind. Let's break down what I think happened just for a second. So let's break this case down for a second. The patient presented with bilateral arm weakness as well as dysarthria and visual changes. What I think happened is when the dissection happened acutely, the brachiocephalic artery became occluded, leading to both subclavian artery occlusion and carotid artery occlusion, which leads to the ipsilateral arm weakness due to the subclavian artery occlusion, as well as contralateral weakness with dysarthria and visual changes due to the carotid artery occlusion. And then on the way to the hospital, the patient's carotid artery became patent again, which explains why the contralateral weakness and the dysarthria and the visual changes resolved. But the ipsilateral weakness and numbness was due to the subclavian occlusion. And this also explains why the patient's blood pressure was very low in that limb. Again, some details of this case were changed just for HIPAA reasons, but the gist is overall the same. Moral of the story, when things don't make sense, start from the beginning and reevaluate. And always consider acute aortic dissections in patients presenting with neurologic deficits. Now, that was a long episode, and that is all I got for you guys today. Please send me emails with feedback, mike at emclerkship.com. I will take your feedback to heart. I will make changes. Let me know what I could be doing better and what I'm already doing good. Until next month's case, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.